Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown, here today with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph. Kizzy and I will be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Mecca Jamila Sullivan is an author of the short story collection, Blue Talk and Love. This proud Harlem native holds a Ph.D. in English Literature from the University of Pennsylvania, an M.A. in English and Creative Writing from Temple University, and a B.A. in Afro-American Studies from Smith College. She is Assistant Professor of English at Bryn Mawr College, where she teaches courses in African-American Poetry and Poetics, Black Feminist Literature, and Creative Writing. In her fiction, she explores the intellectual, emotional, and bodily lives of young black women through voice, music, and hip-hop-inflected magical realist techniques. Her short stories have appeared in several journals and periodicals. She's the winner of several awards, including the Charles Johnson Fiction Award, the James Baldwin Memorial Playwriting Award, and honors from the National Endowment for the Arts, among many others. Mecca Sher has a way with words. She beautifully weaves words together, telling the vivid stories of the characters in Blue Talk and Love. These eclectic characters come to life, bringing feelings of nostalgia, comfort, connectedness. I totally agree, Kizzy. Now sit back and enjoy our amazing conversation with Mecca Jamila Sullivan here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Well, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Can't complain. The weather is, you know, it's it's warm here. I'm trying to enjoy these last moments of warm weather before the fall really kind of settles in. So can't complain. I know, and it's been like such an unusual an unusual time, you yes, know, which um, which really sort of fits in with, with everything. So, like, whenever I get the chance, I try to get outside and yeah. and en- enjoy it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, now, Chizzy is from Brooklyn, but New York okay. from Harlem. Uh, yes. You know, I, I, and I'm an adopted child. <laughs> I'm an adopted child of the city. <laughs> You know. Okay, love it. Mhm. Uh, you know, and a reading, it sort of seems like, especially, you know, and we're going to get into your book more, but mm-hmm. Harlem and that experience really is a big part of who and what you are. How do you see your relationship with your home city? 
That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, absolutely, as you said, Harlem is a huge part of who I am. Um, My relationship to Harlem, I think, has always been complicated. You know, I grew up, my family moved to Harlem in 1987. And so I really sort of grew up alongside the quickening of gentrification. Um, So, you know, when my parents moved up there, a bunch of people, you know, several people were, you know, it was the height of crack, you know, the crack epidemic, police corruption, um, you know, lots of kind of, the block was hot all the time, lots of, you know, sort of activity in the street. Um, and a lot of people were questioning, what, you know, why, why the family would want to move in that direction. Um, at the same time, you know, shortly after, that's when you start to see gentrification really happening, small businesses starting to close down and be replaced by larger chains. I remember... I'm actually writing a novel that's, that, that follows this process, and so I've been thinking about that. The first Starbucks on 125th Street it went before Starbucks was Starbucks, and everyone was sort of like, what's that weird coffee place, you know, on 125th, and how that was kind of the beginning of a major change in the neighborhood. So on one hand, Harlem absolutely shaped who I am in terms of my relationship to music and to food, definitely, and, you know, sort of the visions of community. Um, At the same time, there's a real sense of loss sometimes, especially for me as somebody who moved away, you know, uh, starting college. And I've been back, you know, for differing lengths of time ever since. But every time you come back, there's a different bodega that has disappeared or a different Uh, restaurant uh that's closed down and, you know, new different kinds of businesses cropping up in their place, not to mention people moving away, people losing their homes, selling their homes, um, black people being displaced from their homes. And, you know, so that's a a challenge as well. So there's a real ambivalence. But at the end of the day, Harlem is is joy to me. and I, you know, I, I love Harlem. I love writing about it, and I love going home. My parents, my parents still live in the house that I was raised in, so I love That's going cool. back and, you know, touching base, getting. It's like being fed. It's like a kind of, you know, nourishment that happens when I go home. Ever, you know, even still. You know, I know a lot of people who. And that's what they talk about. They talk about the gentrification and how it's changing. I know people who who love it, love it, love it. You know, I mean, that's yeah. like they'll talk about, you know, getting up in the morning and, you know, certain things as they walk down the street and how it, it just, it's just them. And also yeah. the other part, like what you're saying, I have a friend who, who um, I've met in part through activism and through this work who's like in her 80s and mm-hmm. like she said, like, when they moved there, how it was, and now it was like, you're like, she never really totally thought of seeing herself. I mean, sure, I don't think any of us do, like, in her 80s, but now it's like she's looking at all these things and, uh, and the gentrification, which makes the taxes and everything, and wondering, you know, right. will I be able to stay here? And, yeah. But it's so much a part of her, her life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, coming of age in the 90s as that was happening, um, I think, again, you know, you sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to kind of see your birthplace change and even disappear, you know. Parts of, parts of Harlem have disappeared um, in, you know, what felt like a short span of time. Uh, it's bittersweet, but it's also really beautiful to see the parts of Harlem that endure. My dad loves Harlem Week, which just passed last week, and it went virtual this year. 
but it, it was great to just kind of see, you know, those old school. He was born and raised in Harlem. So to see the old school Harlemites still, you know, representing Harlem and, uh, you know, sort of standing up for and maybe even defending Harlem as, as we know it um, to make sure it stays alive. How often do you get back? So, well, before pre-COVID, uh, it was a lot more often, um, you know. I live in Philly, so it's actually not that it's not that hard. I, I can get on the Amtrak or, you know, the SEPTA to the New Jersey Transit and be home. Um, I would say, you know, several times a year, maybe every couple months, um, I would normally go home. It's been a long stretch, though. I haven't, you know, I haven't been able to leave Philly since March, and we're now in September, so that's been a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many adjustments and transitions in this yeah. new phase that we're in. And, you know, there's no return to normal. Instead, you know, there's what people have been describing, the new normal. Um, you're right. also a associate professor at Bryn Mawr. Can you tell us more about how has your transition been, you know, teaching with the whole remote learning? How has that you know, experience been like for you? Sure. Well, first, well, I'm actually assistant professor, but let's uh, we're going to speak that into existence. That's so I right. appreciate That's the right. promotion. <laughs> um, hopefully, fingers crossed, knocking on wood, that'll soon come. But yes, absolutely. So uh, I was teaching two classes in the spring semester. I was teaching methods of literary study, and I was teaching an introduction to fiction, a fiction workshop when, you know, the students left for spring break, we all left for spring break and um, got the news that we wouldn't be returning back. And at first it was a kind of temporary decision, you know, as in most institutions, people were just kind of trying to figure out what the game plan was. It was a very uh, hectic, you know, kind of challenging shift to online teaching. Um, Luckily for me, I, you know, I, I feel pretty comfortable with, technology. My dad's a computer programmer, so I kind of grew up, you know, with computers in, in my life. Um, and so it, was, it wasn't as much of a, a kind of um, shock, I guess, for me. I already, you know, I was kind of using a lot of um, digital, you know, communications and online exercises and that kind of thing in both of my classes already. So, you know, the kind of, the pragmatics of it weren't that difficult, but it was just a real, it was a shock, I think, for everyone, you know, whether you were teaching or learning or however you were spending your days, those days were different. And I think, um, as you said, Kizzy, you know, trying to approach a a different vision of what normal looks like, um, I think we're still very much in that process. Luckily for me, I'm actually on fellowship leave this year. So I, you know, I had that kind of abrupt shift to online for the second part of last semester, but this semester I'm not teaching. Um, And it feels, I'm grateful for that, you know, and not only because of the just challenges of having to try and imagine a full semester online and possibly a full year, but also because this is a moment where I think as black faculty and black queer faculty and black women faculty, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that are taxed in multiple ways right now. And so for that reason, I feel grateful to be able to kind of take a break and then, you know, support support my colleagues and support my friends at other institutions um, while also still being able to focus on my writing and be kind of go interior a little bit in a way that I feel grateful for. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I was looking, I was thinking about, you know, how your PhD is in English literature. And mm-hmm. I look at, and I've been reading your, your, your books, and it's the literature, you know, when you think of traditional English literature, but yours is like, it's literature, but it, it has to, there's a, a sense of our community. There's a sense of not only a black community, there's a sense of woman community, woman feelings. And it, it makes me think, you know, I often reference, you know, I talked with um, Eric Darnell Pritchard, and he talked okay. about often how um, lit, in literature how particularly as black people, like we wanted to do like the English way, you know, the, the correct sure. way of writing and doing it. But that's often as black people, not how we communicate with each other. It's not right. how we express things. How, how does that balance with you as you're studying and you're, you're getting your Ph.D. in English literature, but your writing is so much of us? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, you know, I appreciate that, and I'm so glad that that comes through, um, you know, as you've encountered my work. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many ways to approach that question. I think for me, what what drew me to English as a, you know, as a, career um, and what drew me to literature as a career is us, just as you've said. And for me, us is black people um, of the U.S. and of the diaspora, our ways of expressing ourselves and our experience, our modes of storytelling, our ways of, you know, sort of manipulating and remixing language to create new meanings. All of these things have been endlessly fascinating to me. And these are the reasons why I'm interested in English and why I'm interested in literature. And so pretty early in my career, as I started to imagine a career for myself, I kind of made that decision that that's what my version of English literature was going to be. Um, And I think that, you know, I I mean, of course, I'm not alone in that. I know several folks that you have talked to on the show. Um, And even if we go further into the canon, I think right away of James Baldwin, right? If black English Uh is in a language, then tell me what is, you know? And this is there's so many folks across the diaspora who have really thought about the ways in which the Englishes or the, you know, the kind of quote-unquote colonial languages spoken by black people throughout the diaspora are languages unto themselves and do what language does. They, they are modes of expression. They create new meanings. Um, they create communications and pathways for connection that can be used for all kinds of action. I think we're seeing that now with, you know, a lot of the kind of digital activism that's happening. All of, all of these things spring from the creativity of black people throughout the diaspora. Um, and I would add, I think, you know, there's a specific kind of um, creativity in the languages of the, the writers that I study. So I'm most interested in black feminist literature and black queer literatures. Um, and in my academic writing, I think a lot about how it's it's the kind of linguistic innovation, the manipulating, the kind of subverting the expectations of languages, the remixing of language that actually creates exciting pathways for new meaning and new ways of thinking. And that's exactly what we expect literature to do. Um, and I agree with you that, you know, the canon doesn't always acknowledge that. But I think, you know, this is an exciting moment where I'm glad at least to get to to trouble the canon a little bit, you know, and press up on that and think about, okay, well, what if we look at literature differently? What else is possible if we expand those definitions? Mm-hmm. 
Now, you know, one of the other, you know, go ahead. No, I just um, wanted to ask, you know, on the long lines of writing, who are some writers that really, you know, influenced your work and shaped your your worldview around the uh, topics that you explore? So um, Audre Lorde is, you know, like many, I'm sure many people have come uh-huh, on your show uh-huh. and talked about Audre, but I'll just mm-hmm. add my voice to the chorus. You know, uh, for lots of reasons, but especially, I think, because Audre Lorde, you know, she writes in multiple genres. She writes, uh, you know, she does exactly what I'm talking about with language. She finds multiple pathways to self-expression, and she's very clear on the political power of her language and of her writing and, um, you know, the fact that she sort of refuses to to kind of acquiesce to what she calls single-issue frameworks, right? Like she insists on being black and a woman and a mother and half blind and ambidextrous and fat and a lesbian and a cancer survivor. And so, you know, that insistence on on sort of stretching language to accommodate all of who she is and how she understands herself, I really admire that. And the fact that she does that in prose and in poetry and in sort of, you know, mixed genre works. So she's, she's always my first, the first person I named. Toni Morrison also, um, for similar reasons. I, I just love the way she can freak a sentence like no other, you know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also her insistence on telling black stories, telling black women's stories, um, and just, you know, for all the reasons I could go on uh, about Morrison. And Suzaki Shange also, um, mm-hmm. and again, as somebody who writes in multiple genres, her relationship with the body and her, um, you know, her sort of uh, insistence on really bringing the body into her writing and into her poetry um, is just breathtaking. And so in For Colored Girls, which is, you know, her most famous work, but throughout her her poetry uh, and her novels and her plays, you know, she's just a stunning lyricist and constantly attentive to black women's bodies and the bodies of women of color. And Jamaica Kincaid is another person who, um, Mm -hmm. more as a fiction writer, she's a major influence Mm -hmm. for me. Her, just what she does with voice. I just fall in love with her narrators and I can't forget about them. And I, you know, I find myself missing her narrators when I'm done. And so at the end of every semester, I usually treat myself to a pleasure read and it's almost always Jamaica Kincaid. You know, it's funny. I have even had guys who, you know, I've been talking like I said, well, who's your influence? I go, Audre Lorde. Yes, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. The world would be better if more people read Audre Lorde, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I know that one of the things is like um, you and I both have Julie Inzer in in common. and. Julie did one book about the complete works of Pat Parker, and yes. then you also wrote a forward to a book about Pat Parker. Right. What drew you to Pat Parker's works? Well, um, you know, first of all, Julie is great, and that opportunity, I uh-huh. mean, I, I still pinch myself that, that mm-hmm. I was the person they called to ask that forward. Mm-hmm. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, it was the 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 letters between Pat Parker and Audre Lorde and um, mm-hmm. the opportunity to sit with those women's conversations. And, you know, I wrote this in the introduction. It really felt very much like eavesdropping, but the best kind of eavesdropping, mm-hmm. right, where you really are taking notes and studying and learning from the wisdom of people like you who have come before you. And uh, so that was just an incredible experience. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I learned of Pat Parker, you know, through an academic context. It was actually through, Audrey, through you know, sort of understanding Audre Lorde's uh, biography. Alexis DeVoe's biography of Audre Lorde, warrior poet, was my introduction mm-hmm. to Pat Parker. And then when the complete works of Pat Parker came out, you know, through um, Midsummer Night's Press, I just devoured it and have, you know, been very much in love with Pat Parker, um, you know, since then. I think she's somebody who, thanks to the work of of Julie and that collection, I think that we're going to be hearing a lot more of Pat Parker. I mean, she's interesting because she was a prolific writer and prolific poet, definitely best known for her poetry, but there's, there was so much really interesting unpublished work that, that Julie was able to publish in that collected works that I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of her work. But certainly, I mean, you know, where will you be? I teach her poem, Where Will You Be, every chance I get, um, because I think it's completely, I mean, it's, you know, relevant almost to the degree that it's prescient. I think it. she anticipated some of the conversations we're having now about, um, you know, kind of, self-interrogation, how to situate yourself in relationship to multiple political struggles, how to kind of think about your relationships to power and privilege, you know, as the youth say, checking your privilege, right, and how Uh complicated uh that can be. This is absolutely what Pat Parker is talking about, you know, decades ago um, in a way that we still need to be listening for now. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, I had talked to Julie when she was done, and that's what she said, you know, like it was like to be privy to that, almost like invading, like these are these personal conversations, but also how afterwards, like, she fell in love with Pat Parker and her work, but how what a privilege it was to see these, these behind-the-scenes conversations, letters, poetry, you know, that between these two, powerhouses. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, I mean, I enjoyed pretty much everything about that experience, but I really enjoyed their humor. I think that's mm-hmm. something that because they're powerhouses, as you know, as you said, and I think a lot of us, of course, look to both of these figures as, you know, sort of literary lions, right? And to see the tenderness between them. There's a lot of affection between them. Um, to see the nuances of their interpersonal kind of interactions, and to see the humor. There, these women were both hilarious. There's one moment where Audrey draws a cartoon on her letter to Pat. There's another moment where Pat is talking to Audrey about how she just was, you know, late sending back a message and sorry, I'm just things are crazy over here and. You know, the tenderness, the vulnerability, the humor, I think that we need those moments. We need to know those moments as much as anything else right now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I, I think, too, I mean, like you said, we, you know, we want to, I mean, like you said, Audre Lorde, everybody, you know, we put them up there on that pedestal, but also yeah. to recognize that even in doing this work, you know, there's love, there's relationships, yeah. there's something deeper than just, you know, oh, somebody wrote these amazing words that we all right. pass around and talk about. 
these are human right. beings, you know, and, right. to, and to, to, to be in touch with their humanity. But we're going to take our yes. first break, and then we're going to start talking about some other thing of Blue Talk and Love, because to me, that humanity is one of the things that I see in that. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And today, Kizzy and I are talking with Mecca Jamila Sullivan. And we're talking about her book, Blue Talk and Love. And I'm going to tell you, okay, first of all, as I'm reading it, I have things like little corners turned over, like, oh, yeah, that part is so (laughs) cool. And that part I like. And, okay, you had me for a moment, you know, hooked on Stevie Wonder. I'm not Stevie okay. Wonder, I'm sorry, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yes. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and even, I mean, and when we were talking about the humanity, as I was reading that one part and thinking yeah. about that song and in that one story, mm-hmm. I was dancing around the house. I felt like dancing around the house. And I thought that is just like so cool that your words can take someone right there. Mm. You know, well, I mean, I was like, thank I, you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was just like so great. You know, I like this book. Uh, I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm still reading. I have corners turned over, but there were things that I saw that you wrote about and that I just like the way that you put it. Like, and I'm going to read you one part. And then if you can please tell me your, your process of coming to putting these words together. And I'm, I'm not yeah. sure if I'm going to um, pronounce it right. If, okay. and, and you said, if Samara Padilla was a lagoon, Ernestine born Lakeisha Ernestine Davis Sanchez was the brown bulbous potato that smart Upper East Side women pushed to the sides of their plates at the start of dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, "Let me read that again." You know, it was just like <laughs> that that visual. And, okay, and yeah. throughout the book, you have some visuals like that. Yeah. What is your writing process? And you know, because each one of these is different, but. Yeah. Did you do you see something you go like, damn, that's good. Let me write this down, and then you come back uh-huh. and and bring and bring it into a story. That's a good. That's a really good question. Um, I would say for the most part, no. I mean, I really appreciate 
what you're saying about the visuality um, of my writing, because it's true. I definitely, I, at the risk of sounding, you know, like this is some otherworldly process. I mean, images do kind of come to me as I'm writing, and it they come to me along with voice. So I always think of myself as a voice-driven writer, um, because mm. voice is usually the first thing that announces itself to me as I'm approaching a story. Um, and that with that story, Blue Talk and Love, the title story, that was absolutely the case. I got the character and I got the voice and then it kind of leads me through. But yeah, the the I am very much a visual writer as well and that's an image that kind of, you know, I don't kind of came to me, I guess is the only way to put it. But I also really appreciate what you're saying about movement and dance. Music is a really big part of my writing practice. It's a big part of my life. Um, And so I love the idea that, you know, my writing can also sort of help ground people in their bodies, even as it brings these images to their minds, you know. Um, But, yeah, with that character, that to me that's sort of how she – she's a younger, you know, she's she's kind of Uh junior high school age, so she doesn't quite have the language – but if she did have the language, that's that's how she would sort of phrase it, you know. And so that's that's a moment where the voice sort of brings me into the mind of the character, and then I can sort of offer these images that help explain how the character is feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, this book—it's like a, it's a collection of short stories, and you know, uh, one of the first the first story that you wrote about is a real event. And actually, years ago, I did another blog talk radio show, and we spoke with one of the wolf pack. And as I read this story, I mean, part of what I found in this book was like, you really brought people to life. You gave a, a, Mm -hmm. like, almost as they would say, a backstory or the other side Mm -hmm. of that. What was your goal in writing? Each one is like, the stories are very diverse. What was mm-hmm. your, your goal in writing Blue Talk and Love? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, I guess I can say that, you know, generally I think my goal in writing is to express what I think and what I know and discover what I want to know. Um, And so I think that's probably applicable to every one of the stories. You know, some of the stories are more rooted in in experiences that I've had. Others are rooted in experiences that, you know, I have learned about and was interested in or felt that I had something to say. So the example that that you've given Wolfpack, this was definitely, you know, this is about the case of the New Jersey Four, um, for black young black women from Jersey who were charged with attempt and convicted of, in fact, attempted murder uh-huh. of a man who threatened to rape them um, and assaulted them. And, you know, I was really, uh, I learned about their case, and like many in the black queer community and in the black women's community in general, was kind of appalled by some of the details of the case. And one of the things that was most striking to me was just the way they were being talked about in the newspapers. So Wolfpack, the title, comes from a New York Post article that called them Mm -hmm. a lesbian Wolfpack, and there were several others that used this kind of dehumanizing language to talk about them. And I thought this, this was an important part of the story that wasn't being talked about. And so 
you know, my if there was a goal with that story, I think I guess I would I would think more of my my interest, you know, my interest in writing that story rather than a goal. My interest was um, to really think through what the role of language was in their case, in their trial, in their experiences. Um, you know, they got a range of prison sentences going up to 11 years. Um, fortunately, they, through the work of the Innocence Project, they were, they had their sentences commuted, and they're all now out of prison. Um, but, you know, at the time, it was fascinating to me to see how, you know, they're being called, you know, these this lesbian wolf pack in the news media. Even at the trial, the judge says, well, sticks and stones may break my bones. And so this rape threat that they received was, you know, benign, right? And they shouldn't have had to, uh-huh. they shouldn't have defended themselves, right? Um, even the defendant, uh, or rather, I guess, you know, the 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 victim, right, the nominal victim in in this case, right, the case against them, the guy who threatened to rape them and who assaulted them said, well, six, you know, it does, it's not a crime to say hello to a human being. He had been harassing them on the street, and he says, well, it's not a crime to say hello. So all of these moments where language ends up doing so much violence um, to these women's lives, uh, and yet the the linguistic violence is completely just, you know, evacuated from the record. No one is thinking about it. No one is talking about it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it and needed to talk about mm-hmm. it. And so, you know, that's how that story came about, about. And I would say generally that's, you know, that's that's why that's why I write, especially with fiction. You know, my pull to fiction is always about trying to kind of put language to what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm observing, or what I'm curious about. Mm. Again, just, you know, reiterating what Michelle said that, you know, you have such a beautiful and vivid way of telling these stories, bringing these characters to life, and, you know, reading the excerpts on your website, I just really felt deeply connected uh, to the characters. In this um, writing process, did you have a particular story of yours in the book that, you know, resonated with you, a work that is your favorite? Mm. That's a good question. Um, That's a great question. I guess, okay, so in the short story Saturday, the character Malaya Clondon, um, she, I would say she's probably the character I know best, um, and that's partly because Mm. that chapter is, that, that, that story is actually closely connected to the first chapter in this novel that I'm working on. And so I feel like I've, you know, and it's a novel that I started when I was working on my master's and I could put it on hold to go do the PhD, wrote the short short story collection. I have this academic book that I'm just now finishing up. So, you know, this novel has kind of been with me through through the whole journey. So I would say that that's a character who I, you know, I I know the best. Um, And, you know, her story is one that has, continue to be interesting to me over all these years. So her this is a story that's, you know, about a young black girl from Harlem who uh is who kind of struggles with the society's expectations on her body, especially regarding her weight. And so she's you know, a big girl, um and her parents kind of battles around gender and class and societal expectations around gender and class and femininity all sort of are battles that become waged on the space of her body. And so 
you know, it's a story that I, I find really interesting. I still find it timely, even though I've been working on it for a while. Um, and I would say she's the character who I know the best, you know. Yeah, so you talk a lot. And I think the other thing that I thought was interesting throughout was when you did talk about bodies, often we don't talk about bodies or acknowledge bodies. But, you know, and again, with your, your language, how you're doing it, because I'm thinking like um, the one that, that is on the title of Blue Talk and Love, but also the mm-hmm. one about the conjoined twins. And, yes. you know, there is a part where you really felt their bodies, their mm-hmm. bodies as one, but their bodies also in conflict with each other. Um, I mean, which was like something I never would have uh, thought of, uh, you know, been able to, to immediately thought about. And even yeah. there's a part of a, a sensuality that one had, mm-hmm. uh, even a sexuality and a sensuality that came from that. Mm-hmm. So you talk a lot about bodies. You talk about, I mean, and really to have people look at bodies, to look at, you know, that even in not your cover girls, you know, but here are real bodies, real women bodies and all these different things, different sizes, shapes, colors. And you talk about that, the different colors, like the different, one is is darker brown, one is light brown. I mean, you talk about people's complexions, their sizes, their shapes, and how they feel about their bodies and how other people see their bodies and their reactions to that. Why is that important? I mean, I, I know my, I have my own feel why it's important, but why do you think it's really important, particularly for black women, to acknowledge, celebrate, and recognize the differences that we are all of these shapes and they're all beautiful? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for that. And I'm glad that that, you know, emerges and, you know, as a, as a theme um, in my work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, as as you know and as I, your listeners are, I'm sure, well aware, right, black women's bodies throughout the world have historically been, you know, colonized, have been objectified, commodified, bought, sold, and, you know, our relationships to our bodies have been under-recognized and under-appreciated culturally, legally, systemically. Um, and so I think that, you know, approaching black women's inner world and inner lives through the body is really crucial. I mean, you know, philosophically, there's that whole idea of like the Cartesian mind-body split, right? That the mind is the place where, you know, knowledge happens and the mind is the place where sophistication and, you know, it's a more sort of valid um, site, right, in human experience. And the body is base and is, you know, is devoid of knowledge and is you know, this is immoral even, right, to your point about pleasure. And for that, that logic has always worked against black people and black women especially. Um, and so I think, you know, as a writer, to kind of get to the intellectual inner lives of black women through our feelings and thoughts and our experiences of the body, that's profound. I think that's something that we don't see often enough, especially if we're talking about, you know, like you said, cover girls, right, if we're talking about, magazines and pop culture and these are arenas where, you know, these are these arenas at least have been very, very slow to acknowledge that black women have inner complexity and have a complex range of embodiments 
all of which, as you said, are to be celebrated, all of which are valid, all of which are, you know, human. Um, And that complexity is really important to me. And so, you know, I like that you mentioned the conjoined twins, Millie and Christine McCoy, who were were real living figures. They were conjoined twins born into slavery in the Carolinas around the turn of the century, the 20th century. And um, I, you know, was doing a research project on Zora Neale Hurston, something totally different, and came across some photos of them. And I had just the same question that you had. Like, what must it be like to have your body attached to another body, right? You're Mm -hmm. conjoined to another body, the body of your sister, right? And, like, you know, sibling relationships have enough drama on their own, (laughs) potentially, right? But to have your bodies attached to one another, and your body is already marked by difference and stigmatized in several ways, right? Being black, being a woman, being enslaved. Um, you know, I just, I couldn't stop thinking about them. And so that's what kind of, that's exactly the kind of question that pushed me to that story and brought me through that story. But yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, something I think about all the time. Our bodies, you know, the fight to kind of claim and name and define our bodies is something that I think many, many black women are engaged in, um, you know, whether it's something that they think about consciously or not. And, you know, there's a, I think there's also an, an interesting kind of myth that black women are born with some, you know, sort of mystical confidence in our bodies and the, the cultural mm-hmm. narratives, especially around fatness, don't touch us and, you know, I think that's, hopefully that's true for some. I really want to believe that there are some black women out there who just love their body and are not scathed or touched by the stigmas that swirl around our bodies. But I think for a lot of us, that's not the case. And either way, we still need to be, you know, centered in the fights around bullying and fat shaming and because a lot of those things happen on our bodies or on our backs, literally. Um, and so, you know, the vulnerability of black women to some of these narratives, I think, is important to really acknowledge as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because we also live in the in the era of where you have there are black women who are claiming their sexuality and their bodies, and you know, I'm thinking, you know, I remember when Lizzo first came out, and you know. And, I mean, okay, I'm a Lizzo fan. Okay. And people talked about Lizzo. You know, they talked about Lizzo. and and, But here she was celebrating who she is. And, of course, the latest one was just the one with Cardi B and uh, Megan Thee Stallion. And people are going like, oh. But how how do you see those? If you're looking at the overall context of what you were talking about and doing that, in some ways it's a celebration that here these women are, claiming it and helping others, but at the same time, some there are those who would say, well, they're being seen like we have always been seen, only hmm. through a sexual lens without getting the message of that. Is that more of the same? And how do we get beyond that, beyond looking at black women just as sexual beings through that lens? Sure. So I think it's a complex question, right? Because I think, you know, as you said, there we are in a moment where we're seeing a few key figures, who some of whom we've just talked about, right? So Lizzo, most recently Megan Thee Stallion, and Cardi B, who are sort of very boldly, publicly 
vocally embracing their sexuality and the kind of sexual um, possibilities of their body, right? Um, and I think that that is profound. I'm going to go ahead and say I'm a fan of all three, um, uh-huh. and I think we need more of all three. And I think, you know, it's interesting, right before the break, we were talking about pleasure um, and sensuality. And I, you know, as you were as you were closing us out in the last segment, I kept thinking of Audre Lorde and uses of the erotic, right? And, yeah. you know, part of the argument that Lorde makes there is that the erotic, it's uses of the erotic, the erotic as power. And part of the argument she makes is that the erotic is a source of power because it can show us the height of pleasure, right? And once we sort of truly apprehend the pleasure our bodies are capable of, we can then more fully understand the, the ways in which we need to be able to access freedom, pleasure, connection, right? All of these things that are also political, that also have political valences, particularly freedom. And, um, you know, that's what I think about when I think about what's important about a song like WAP, for example, or, you know, Lizzo wearing her um, pants with the butt out, right? Just like Prince did a few decades ago. Um, Uh That like to say that I am claiming my sexuality and I'm centering my desire, right? That, and I think that's a key difference that, you know, folks are not necessarily trained to really pick up on, um, but it's an it's a important, crucial difference, right? This is not black women presenting themselves to be consumed. This is black women presenting themselves to express themselves and to express their own desire. Um, and so, you know, listening to WAP, for example, the lyrics are all about these women's desire, right, what they want to happen to their body. In some ways, it's the absolute opposite of objectification. The difficulty is that objectifying eyes are going to objectify no matter what, right? So, like, whether, uh-huh. you know, there are a whole bunch of people who probably aren't even listening to the lyrics but are just seeing these images and doing what people are trained to do with those images, which is to consume them. And so that's a failure of the the reader, watcher, you know, listener, I think, rather than a failure of the artist, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And I also think that, you know, there's a long, long history. I mean, if we go back to, you know, I mean, my reference points would be, you know, Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown, um, uh-huh. you know, but there's even more contemporary City Girls, Trina, right? And, I mean, if we even go back further into, you know, some blues singers, um, you know, that that folks have written about, that notion of black women expressing desire is not new. Um, and I think every few decades, you know, we had this conversation in the 90s with Lil' Kim, right? Every few decades uh-huh. we have this conversation about, well, where's the line between, self-objectification and, like, a radical feminist voicing of desire. Um, And I think that the question is really why can't we listen to women while they talk about their sexuality and why can't we listen to their lyrics while they're talking about their desire and, you know, wearing butt-out jeans, right? Like, Uh what they have to say is so valid. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's why I appreciate your short story Saturday so much because it you know, really highlight the nuances of body image within the black community, like, you know, issues around body image for black women in particular, so different, you know, from white women and so many, you know, experiences. And I think, you know, the message 
that comes through me as, you know, we speak about this particular topic is, you know, what does it mean for a black woman to embrace their personal power via the via their bodies, you know, in a way that is is fearless and authentic. So I'm really appreciating, you know, this uh, spin on the the conversation and the various ways in which, you know, black women, you know, express themselves through their body. Thank you for that. Yeah, and really, like you said, and as you stop and you think about, like, you can go way far back. And, you know, even as many, often it comes through entertainment because you can go as far back as Mm -hmm. Josephine Baker where many people didn't didn't see all that she was Mm -hmm. because they were looking at, all that she was, you know. So, right, I mean, right. It, it, mm-hmm. So, I mean, so before we go take our, 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 well, you know, I think that that's a really good part. I think that um, I have to ask, okay. Sure. All right. For that story, she ain't a gerbil, okay? All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. a story about someone who ate a gerbil. I'm yes, I do. Wow, you know, yeah. that wouldn't even cry. <laughs> you know, although I think that, you know, there is always, you know, somebody in there. And how did that, how did you get that story? I mean, that's where did funny. that come from? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So this is a story called The Anvil. Um, uh-huh. And it's very much, you know, in, in keeping with the conversation that we're having now. You know, that story kind of was a, I think of it as a kind of like slow-burning satire that, mm-hmm. you know, it starts off grounding you kind of in, in a reality. This is a narrator telling her kind of life story or a part of her story. And my hope is that as the story goes on, the story becomes like more and more ridiculous, right, to the point that you're like, okay, uh-huh. this is a lot, <laughs> you know, it can't really be real. It's called The Anvil because in addition to uh, – a gerbil, by the end of the story, you realize that she is, she feels that she has also eaten an anvil. Um, and essentially that story for me is about, you know, just what we're talking about, honestly, this idea that um, women's bodies are so policed, and specifically what, what women eat, right, it can be so policed that almost anything is better than eating too much. And so this is, you know, the character, has, she goes through this journey of being kind of scrutinized and having her meals, you know, be judged and scrutinized and her own anxieties around dieting um, and diet culture have driven her to this place where she's just kind of like left reality and is, yes, eating gerbils, eating anvils and can no longer sort of sustain. Yeah, can't, you know, she can't sustain the demands of diet culture. Um, and so she's kind of like flying away. and She imagines herself as some kind of like African princess, you know, my hope is by the end of the story, you're not quite clear what's real or what's not, but you know that something is ridiculous. And in my mind, what's ridiculous is diet culture. Yeah, I mean, it's like wow. I mean, it was, it was, it was like <laughs> it took you on a journey, and I thought that was like yeah. so. I mean, a perfect way to end the end the book, you know, which it is. Yeah. So we're going to take our second break, and um, if you're just joining us, we are talking to Mecca Jamila Sullivan about writing, women, and so much more. We'll be right back.
Reflections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And, okay, I'm going to read another part from, from your book. Um, okay. So, in Blue Talk and Love, it has, Out There in the Yard, Ernestine felt that she and Zamora were alone in a secret tropical cave beneath a post-apocalyptic city sometime around the year 2020, an impossible distance away. We're here in 2020. Here we are. Here we are. Do you ever think about, you know, I mean, they're hiding, you know, cigarette things, and they're out there, and they're talking about a post-apocalyptic. Well, we're about as close as being it as it is now. That's right. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about that. Go ahead. Uh, no, that's what I was guessing. Have you been thinking about yeah. that? Yeah, I've been thinking about that line. Um, I'm glad that you brought it up because I've definitely been thinking about that. You know, I mean, I wrote that story, um, let's see, it was probably around 2011 maybe when I wrote that, maybe a little earlier when I wrote that, when I first drafted that story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm. It, it's set in the 90s and, you know, these are teenagers, you know, kind of, young teenagers, 12, 13 years old. And so, you know, I'm thinking of them imagining the year 2020 and what that would be. And certainly, you know, when you're 12 years old, even something that's, you know, 15 years away feels like an unfathomable distance, right? It feels Uh sort of, you know, otherworldly. Who knew how otherworldly 2020 would turn out to be, (laughs) though? Because it absolutely is. And, you know, I think there are these moments where as a writer, as I mentioned, right, like, you know, you sort of get, you get flashes of insight, um, you know, an image will come to you or a line will come to you. And that was absolutely one that, that you know, came to me. And I, I, I think at the time I remember being in the, you know, at the time even the year 2000 felt like a, an impossible distance away. Um, and so 2020 was that far, far reach. But yeah, I would have had no no way of knowing quite how post apocalyptic. I don't know if we've made it to post apocalyptic yet. We're like, you know, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope we're on the other end. Yeah, we're still in the storm, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, there's a comfort in writing. I mean, you know, it's funny. Just yesterday, I saw a post. Octavia Butler's agent had posted that Parable of the Sower made it to the New York Times bestseller uh-huh. list which was one of her personal life goals and writing goals. And, you know, everyone, I think, who reads black feminist literature and black literature and sci-fi, you know, we all, we can look at this moment and see clearly that Octavia had the sight and she saw a lot of this. Um, And so I guess there's maybe, you know, if we look really hard, maybe there's a comfort in knowing that, you know, writing kind of holds our past, our present, and our future. 
um, in a way that, you know, can be sort of comforting. They're that full circle moment that Octavia Butler is clearly helping a lot of people get through 2020 to the point that then it ends up closing a loop, you know, and sort of fulfilling a dream that she had in life. There's something beautiful about that, too. But that that also has been, like, so inspiring, that story. Yeah. And it has been so inspiring. I mean, I had talked to Adrienne Marie Brown, talked about how it had inspired her. Alexis Pauling Gums, there it is, too. Toshi yeah. Reagan has done this whole... Yeah. Parable yeah, her performance. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I think that often we're touched by the ancestors. Do you feel, you know, Harlem is so rich in our history, mm-hmm. and there were people who were great writers and the Harlem Renaissance and all these people who came through Harlem. Do you ever feel their hand on your shoulder as you're writing? That's beautiful. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um and especially, interestingly, especially Audre Lorde, who is not someone who's readily associated, and you know, people don't think of her as kind of the, the mouth of Harlem. Um, but for me, you know, I grew up on the block that she lived on um, mm. for much of her childhood and, you know, also went to the same high school, which is nowhere near. The high school is on the Upper East Side. Um, so she's someone who I feel a kind of spiritual connection with as well. I even went to the the church that she went to and which is down the street so you know there's a kind of spiritual connection that I feel um with her and that is very much associated with Harlem and in general you know those streets have wisdom and knowledge and have they're alive you know those streets have spirit and you can absolutely feel the spirit of Harlem I guess that's what I talk about when I say going home you feel the loss but you also feel the aliveness and I think that that aliveness Mm. is is history as well. The block that I grew up on is kind of northern, northwest Harlem, so right kind of Hamilton Heights area just before you get to Hamilton Heights and Washington Heights. And so there's also this great kind of like multicultural, um, you know, multiple cultural influences that I grew up with that feel very much like Harlem to me. So it's like as, you know, as much as you're hearing English, you're hearing Spanish, you're hearing Patois, you're hearing Creole, um, and that aliveness also signifies Harlem to me, even as it's rooted in this black U.S. black experience, literary experience of the Harlem Renaissance. Har- you know, hip hop too, right? Like, you know, um, like hip hop has is a kind of major uh, influence of mine, and it certainly you know has its literary roots. Some of its literary roots in Harlem. I mean, I know we got Brooklyn in the house, so I don't want to. Over over speak here, <laughs> but you know the the storytelling of the Harlem Renaissance I think also opens space for hip hop to become what it is, and so there there's an important kind of literary connection there for me as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You don't want to. Hey, you shouldn't put down the gauntlet. <laughs> no. I love Brooklyn. I saw my best friends are from Brooklyn, so no shade. You know, and the Bronx as well. And like, let's be real. Like, if we really want to look at where hip hop began, it would be the Bronx. Hot take. So. Yeah, we had someone um, we talked to who is now living in Detroit, but who's who is from Brooklyn, and we tried to put him on the spot. Like, okay, Brooklyn or Detroit? And so he Ooh, came up with a good thing. He said, like, the parts of Brooklyn. I don't remember. It was the parts of Brooklyn that he loved. He found yeah. a similar place in Detroit that made him feel mm. 
feel feel really great, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that's kind of how I feel about Philly. Uh huh. I was gonna say yeah, that's kind of how I feel about Philly. I mean, I think I have, I have, you know, really worked to find little places and corners in Philly that feel like home, um, and that home will always be defined by Harlem for me. So I feel like Harlem. I'm gonna find a Harlem wherever I go, you know. Who who are you reading now? Who and you know, do you look to like, oh well this is somebody who's on my list, like you said, at the end of uh, the semester, who's on your mm-hmm. your list of people who you're reading now? So at the moment I'm reading volume one of Gail Jones' new novel. Um, she published uh, in in June, I think. June, maybe July a six-part series and called Palmares, and it's really interesting. It's fascinating. New Gail Jones, is, this is another gift of 2020, you know. I think we have to, like, count the gifts here, and that is absolutely one for me. So I'm in the middle of reading the first of six volumes. Um, I'm excited about that. In terms of newer writers, uh, I'm a fan of Akwake Amezi, who uh, is probably best known for their novel Freshwater, but they just came out with a really interesting essay in, I think it was in the New York Times, about, about this experience of, of quarantine and isolation. And I'm, you know, reading through that. It's a gorgeous essay. Um, and, you know, other than that, most of my reading is related to writing projects. So, you know, which is great because I get to read a bunch of the books that we were talking about, you know, sort of re- I'm polishing up this academic book that's, deals a lot with Lord and Shange and Morrison and Dion Brand, and so I'm kind of, you know, surrounding myself with some of those really foundational voices as well. Mm-hmm. So I know you said you were working on a novel. When do you, I mean, do you, are you just working on it? Do you have a, a target date when we can expect to see that? Well, I, <laughs> hopefully soon, <laughs> hopefully uh-huh. soon. I think I will be sending it off to, you know, my trusted readers in the next I'm like I'm gonna go ahead and name it and claim it in the next two days, I think. Probably by Saturday right. I'll be sending it off to my trusted mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think it'll be hopefully making its way, you know, into something solid and more tangible soon. Um so to be continued on that, but I am excited about it. And then the academic book is actually forthcoming. It should be out in 2021, um, and it's called The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora. And it really deals with, you know, basically all of the things that we've been talking about, sort of how black women writers and performers and visual artists use these, you know, sort of disturbances of form and genre to forward new thinking about black identity and black womanhood. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to all these wonderful words and, you know, wisdom and insights and um, perspectives. Can you uh, tell us more about the poetics of difference? I'm really fascinated by that phrase, and I'm, you know, wondering what um, uh, you mean by that. Yeah. So um, I am using the term poetics to talk about aesthetics, form, the kind of even style, right, the ways in which, you know, in black feminist literary cultures, the the writing, the literature isn't only the words on the page, but it's sort of how they're arranged, what they do, how how they're done. And so I think of poetics as a way of articulating 
the formal, you know, stylistic and even the kind of genre choices that writers, artists, and performers make so that poetics doesn't apply only to poetry, but the poetry in a photograph, the poetry in a theater performance, the poetry in a hip-hop song, uh, and that all of that, all of those choices are ways of conveying the kind of complexity and nuance and, like, the multiplicity of experience that we've been talking about, right, that black womanhood isn't just one thing. In fact, it's always imbued with difference, and those differences come out in our poetics. So, like, one kind of, one example is the Choreo poem for Colored Girls, right? I argue that that's an example of the poetics of difference because she refuses to create just a poem or just a piece of choreography, right? By melding the two, she's insisting that we look at these characters differently and that we look at black womanhood differently in ways that invoke both the, you know, the mind, the poetry, and the body, right, the dance, as we've been talking about. And so that's one example of what I would call the poetics of difference, right, refusing to kind of limit oneself to the expected genre or the expected poetic form and instead doing something different to create a more expansive view of black womanhood. Do you, what what do you, when you have a student come up to you and if they're asking you about writing, what advice do you give to them as far as finding that voice, finding their own voice in way of expressing themselves and the stories they want to tell? Yeah, I mean, I I always give two pieces of advice that might be contradictory, but, you know, that's my own poetics of difference, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I tell them, read, right? I do think it's really important to, as a writer, to read as much as you can and find your literary love. You know, for me, as I mentioned, Jamaica Kincaid, like when I really sat and studied her writing, I learned so much about myself as a writer because I learned that, I like she, I am a voice-driven writer. And that voice, you know, the way I connect with her voices as a reader is the way that I want readers to connect with my voices as a writer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, reading I think is really important. But I also encourage students to just listen, to listen to actual people talking, listen to themselves, you know, listen to the world around them, observe what bothers them. Um, certainly in the case of Wolfpack, that the story about the New Jersey Four, that's a story that came from something in the world that really just, like, bothered me, you know, and I, I couldn't let it go. And so I felt that, like, listening to myself, to the world around me, was what kind of pushed me in that direction. So I think it's a balance between studying and, you know, sort of, listening to the wisdom of writers that have come before you, but also like really kind of paying attention to yourself and your own life, you know, and your inner voice and what it's telling you um, you need to be doing, what you need to be paying attention to. You know, as I read that, and I told you, like we had, um, I mean, it was years ago when we interviewed them. And, you know, one of the things that I remember about that interview was everyone was concerned about what had happened. The same Mm -hmm. thing like, well, why couldn't you just walk away? He was just words and all like that. And Mm -hmm. all of those kind of things. And that's where people's mind were, where Mm -hmm. it was like, you know, but these – and when you wrote about it, you gave them story, you gave them life. You made it where you understood why it was more than just the words. Have you ever heard from any of them who have read what you did with their story? So I did get the, 
Yeah, I did get to meet Patrice Johnson through Toshi, actually. At one of Toshi Regan's yeah. shows, uh, Toshi introduced me to Patrice Johnson, and it was wonderful to get to talk with her about her experience. It was a brief, you know, brief encounter. We've kept in touch on Facebook, so, you know, this is how social media mm-hmm. facilitates these connections. Um, and so it was important to me to send her the story um, and, you know, because it's always a difficult thing when you're writing something that that pulls from or touches the life of an actual person and the traumatic experience that, you know, actual living people have gone through. It was important to me to, you know, share that with them and open space for any kind of connection and conversation. And that it was, you know, one of the most humbling experiences of my career um, and of my writing life when she responded and she thanked me for the story um, or if, and or for sending it. And that was a, it was a really kind of, you know, profound moment for me. Because, again, for me, I really felt that the only reason to write that story was because there was a part of the story that I didn't see told, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I was grateful that I had the chance to to put it out there and even more grateful that, you know, Patrice responded the way she did. Mm-hmm. Well, just, you know, as we discussed the span of your work, how would you say your, you know, writing journey has uh, grown over time? Like when you think back to your first piece, to, you know, all the amazing upcoming projects uh, you have now, like how, how would you describe your journey with writing? That's a good question. It has been a journey for sure. Um, you know, I think I started writing, well, okay, so I first identified as a writer when I was in the fifth grade. And it mm-hmm. was the same year that I discovered Toni Morrison and Antozaki Shange. Yeah. You know, and I often joke I was too young to be reading what I was reading, but I was also right on time, you know, because I think it really inspired in me this curiosity. I remember when I read The Bluest Eye for the first time Mm. and it dawned on me that, like, you could do this, that a person could create a whole world through words on a page and that that could be a way that one could spend a life, you know. It just Mm. blew my mind and, you know, from that moment until this moment that has, I've never wanted anything more, honestly. And so I guess, you know, to answer your question, I feel grateful to, you know, to feel clear that I'm living my life's purpose as a writer um, and that I have, you know, I'm sort of living in many of my literary dreams and living toward others. And, um, you know, that's really what else can you ask for, you know? Um, and I, you know, I enjoy... I enjoy the journey and the fact that I still enjoy the journey tremendously and I'm still excited about it. And, you know, even this novel that I've been talking about that I've been working on for so long, I'm really glad that I get this time to sit and be in it. You know, now that I'm on sabbatical, I get to really kind of like immerse myself in this novel again. Um, And I feel grateful for that. All right. You know, I want to say you've been, you've been, you inspired me. You know, I have one of those novels that I've been doing. It's like okay. I'm listening to you, and it's sort of like you know, you're right. This is the time yes. to to go back and to uh, and to think about that. I mean, this this yes. time has given us that opportunity, you know, to visit projects, to think about things, and to see what's going on. Yeah, you think we need that, it. Um, we need your novel. 
Yeah. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna work on that. I'm gonna work on yeah. that. You know, I, I think that it, it's just it's just really amazing to hear, and I always appreciate when I hear writers like how you said when I hear that voice and that you're able to see it. Like I said, I was I was singing September and dancing in the kitchen with the broom. You know, and it was like yes, I and, love and, it. And I think that that is. That's the power of writing, which I think that, you know, I am glad that you're not only doing it, but that you have the opportunity to interact when, when you were in a classroom yeah. with that. Because often, you know, people say, oh, I want to write a novel. They go, oh, yeah, okay, do that, but get a real job. You know, but, but right. to recognize that when you hear that voice, you know, and that's telling you and sometimes when you're writing something that voice sort of like it just comes over you and it just takes over and it writes it but to to be able to inspire that and by your presence in the community and in the writing world i i I applaud you for that i applaud you for even to where even to in the anchor where maybe you want to tell something and say oh nobody will read this this is so fantastic but tell that (laughs) story and and i applaud you and i thank you for for this work of of literature, I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Michelle, thank you so much. That means so much to me. Uh, everything that you said, I, it's really moving, and I, I receive it, and I'm very grateful. Thank you. Yeah. So, well, we've come to about the end of our time here. Again, I want to thank you for responding and for sharing so much of yourself and about writing and what you've done. Um, Always be that Harlem girl. Never give it up. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Never will. Never could. <laughs> well, thank so. you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. And so on behalf, I'm going I'm to let Kizzy say her own goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was absolutely lovely speaking with you, Maka, and it's just, I'm, you know, we're all black women, and, you know, I love black women. Black women is always first in my life, and it's so amazing yes. to, you know, just hear your words. Like, even the way you speak is just with beauty as, you know, your words on the page. And um, thank you for, you know, inspiring me, um, just, you know, the array of topics we've discussed in, you know, mm-hmm. almost an hour and a half, you know, just spent around the world, and it was such a fascinating conversation. So I thank you for, you know, sharing your, your wisdom, your experiences. Um, it's very extremely meaningful and needed, and uh, we need uh, more black women voices, specifically black queer women voices. Um, the work, you know, is, is never over, and, you know, right. your, your contributions, you know, is a big part of that work. So, again, I thank you so much, Mecca. Well, thank you, Kizzy. That's that's really beautiful and moving, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. So I appreciate it. And as you said, yeah, we've had a great journey um, through language together, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Well, with that, I'm going to say thank you again. Um, we hope to – we'll be watching, you know, we'll be watching yes. and um, uh, for your next – for that novel – and I that's hope to be able to sit down and talk with you about that then, too. 
But enjoy your sabbatical. Happy writing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You too. I hope you get back to that novel. I am. Thank you. I am. All right. Thank you both so much. This was really wonderful. Kizzy and I want to thank our guest, author and scholar, Mecca Jamila Sullivan. Mecca actually has a few excerpts from Blue Talk and Love on her website if you're interested in catching a glimpse. And if you find that you're loving what you're reading, Mecca has even more amazing projects on the way. A novel, as well as a book exploring the politics of experiment in Black, queer, and feminist literary cultures. We are definitely looking forward to these wonderful gifts. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can support the podcast by becoming a sponsor of Collections by Michelle Brown on Patreon.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.